But I think it's pretty clear that the big problem that caused the blackout in February was the, the, the lack of winterization and then the lack of ability to get natural gas from uh, to natural gas generators. Now, that second problem is not a PUC problem. There's another organization called the Railroad Commission that regulates natural gas. And so these two organizations have to work in concert. And this is my own personal opinion. There was less done on the natural gas side to address those issues. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode 53 coming at you right now, and we're glad to have you on board as we are each and every week. This week, we welcome to the program Mr. Brett Perlman, CEO of Center for Houston's Future, a think tank located right here in the great city of Houston, Texas. Focuses on all things Houston as well as from the energy perspective, what exactly Houston's role is in the energy transition as well as becoming a hub for a carbon-free future. But before we get to that, let's welcome to the program as we do each and every week, Mr. Mr. Mike Niemer, CEO and founder of eRenewable, telling you what it is we do here at eRenewable. Hi, Mike Niemer here, president and CEO of eRenewable. At eRenewable, we bring technology to the sustainability space by hosting real-time online auctions for both PPAs and VPPAs. Our electronic management tool helps streamline the RP process, whether you are a buyer or a seller of wind, solar, or battery storage, our platform will provide pricing efficiencies to your organization. Additionally, we help customers with microgrid or battery storage development, renewable natural gas by turning waste energy, LED lighting and HVAC efficiency upgrades, unbundled recs, and provide energy advisory services to our customers. Please visit our website at erenew.net or call us at 1-866-ERENEW1. As always, Thank you for listening to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Mike Niemer. Be sure to give us a follow over there at LinkedIn, at eRenewable and The Green Insider Podcast. And of course, you can learn more about the company over at eRenew.net. So let's jump out to today's episode with Mr. Brett Perlman, talking about the role Houston will play in the energy transition, as well as Mr. Perlman reflecting on his role as the PUC, Public Utility Commissioner, and what it means for ERCOT, and what he sees ERCOT doing moving forward in coordination with the PUC and the railroad commission. So without further ado, please welcome to the program, Mr. Brett Perlman. I have a 20-year career in energy and uh, currently running an organization called the Center for Houston's Future. We have been working on thinking about Houston's role in the energy transition. So we tend to look at uh, big global trends and their impact on the Houston region. And uh, we think that, you know, Houston has a uh, an important role to play as we start to think about uh, climate change and how the um, energy industry is going to change over the next, uh, you know, the next decade. So that's some of the work we're doing. Building a little bit on the my past, I formerly worked as a um, commissioner on the Public Utility Commission of Texas. Was involved with the restructuring of the electric market here in Texas around the turn of the century in 1999 through 2003. And in between the job I have now and and that job, I had a, a consulting practice. I worked on a lot of energy issues. So in some ways, this is um, uh, just an opportunity for me to give back to the community and some of the expertise that I've gathered along the way, help 
you know, create a, um, a platform for the next generation of leaders in energy. You mentioned being a former PUC, Public Utility Commissioner. Explain the role of the PUC when it comes to ERCOT, because, I, listen, in today's society, everybody wants to point blame at everything that happened, and, you know, the ERCOT freeze was certainly no, no uh, exception to that. What role does the PUC play when it comes to the grid in ERCOT? Well, let me, let me start, uh, even before I talk about the PUC, sure. let me just start and talk a little bit about what ERCOT is and what that is, because Absolutely. Um, I think everybody has now heard of ERCOT, but... Um, ERCOT is, um, it means two things. It's um, an area, it's called the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, and it um, is about 85% of the state. So about 85% of the state is within a power region uh, that is controlled together. So all the resources, the generation resources are all uh, centrally dispatched. And so when we talk about ERCOT as a power region or as a market, that's one definition. The, the other definition is ERCOT as an organization. So there is an organization called ERCOT. And the way to think about that is uh, they are the air traffic controller uh, of the grid. So they don't own any generation. All they do, they don't even manage any generation. They, they simply uh, coordinate the generation uh, that's out there that's um, owned by um, a bunch of companies, renewable companies, uh, thermal generation companies, nuclear companies. And so ERCOT's job as an organization is simply to um, be that air traffic controller of the grid. So I think it's important to know that, you know, when we start talking about the February freeze, the role of the different entities when we say ERCOT, what we mean. And then in terms of what you asked about the PUC, the PUC is basically the overseer of the organization that we call ERCOT. It's the regulatory force in Texas. And in Texas, we have a little bit of a different structure than the rest of the country. We uh, are not interconnected with the rest of the grid because in the 40s and 50s, we decided we wanted to control our own destiny and didn't want to um, to have um, regulation from the um, from the federal government. So we didn't uh, by not interconnecting our grid, we weren't involved in interstate commerce, and therefore, Public Utility Commission, the organization I used to be on, is the uh, regulator of the um, both the wholesale and retail aspects of the market. And so, really, what the Public Utility Commission does is that it's a regulatory agency that um, oversees and implements. Uh, the policy that's determined by the um, by the governor and the legislature. So we are we are um, the Public Utility Commission is really a creature of um, of the legislation that um, passed uh, that governs how this market that I called ERCOT runs. When something like that happens, we get it. Everything that could have possibly uh, failed did fail uh, in February. But how do we prevent that? And what could have been done? to keep that from happening. After the blackout in 2011, I wrote a um, op-ed that said, this is a serious problem and uh, and we need to take action to fix it, that we have to have stronger rules to enforce and, and winterization in Texas. As I mentioned, the uh, PUC is a creature of the, um, primarily of the legislature. And um, at that point in time in 2011, the, PU, uh, the legislature chose not to act. And so, um, we have had this uh, relatively, I won't say it's lax, but we've had a, um, we have not had a strict winterization type of um, regulatory regime. But we do, the, the generation resources do file winterization plans at the PUC, but there are not rules established. And so I think one of the, one of the faults and one of the issues that we had, and this is a very big and complex problem, and I'll try to touch on some of the aspects of it. One of the issues of, uh, that we have had is that we haven't had, just like wearing seatbelts in your car, 
we, we, you have to establish the, you know, the rules of the road, how, how everything operates. And I think that was one of the flaws in the way the system worked. We didn't have the, um, you know, the mandatory seatbelt law uh, required uh, generators to, uh, to weatherize their plants. So that was one aspect of the problem. I think that is being dealt with in some of the legislation that passed uh, in the in the legislative session, but it's a much bigger problem than that, actually, because one of the things we learned is that the system is is highly interconnected, and is highly interconnected not only with the you know the power the various parts of the power grid across the state, it's also interconnected with the gas system, and these two systems, the power system and the gas system, have to act have to operate in tandem, and so what we saw in uh, last February is not only did some of the plants fail because they weren't winterized, but many of the plants couldn't get, couldn't get fuel to thermal plants. And that was the primary reason for the failure. It was, it was really around, um, and people have been, you know, there was a lot of finger pointing, but I think it's pretty clear that the big problem that caused the blackout in February was the, the, the lack of winterization and then the lack of ability to get natural gas from, uh, to natural gas generators. Now that second problem, is not a PUC problem. There's another organization called the Railroad Commission that regulates natural gas. And so these two organizations have to work in concert. And this is my own personal opinion. There was less done on the natural gas side to address those issues. And um, I, I do think that there needs to be more done in terms of creating a, a, a formal structure, a regulatory structure to address winterization of, of gas assets so, as, long, as well as um, uh, power plants if we're going to address this, the, the problem that we had in uh, last February. So I, I would hope, uh, you know, I said in 2011, there was a problem and it didn't get fixed. And, um, you know, I think there still is a problem. Uh, hopefully I'm wrong, but we'll see what happens and whether the uh, entire problem gets fixed or we've, we've just solved half, solved half of the problem. Does anybody monitor the natural gas plants as to when they come down for maintenance so that not everybody's down at the same time? Is there a schedule where people try to follow so we only have a certain percentage off at one time. So this has been an issue that's been raised about outages. It's come up this summer, I think, because we still have quite a few units uh, offline. That's and what the I answer thought. To your question, I, the answer to your question is, heretofore, there hasn't been sort of a, a, a statewide maintenance schedule. So we don't have, you know, kind of the, the Outlook uh, calendar in the sky where everybody schedules their, their uh, maintenance schedule. Because... Frankly, everybody likes to do their maintenance at the same time because during the fall and the spring are the times in Texas when you don't need all that capacity. And so a lot of those plants tend to be off. Now, we, we can tend to get surprised from time to time. And so that system has worked pretty well uh, for the last 20 years. But I know that there is um, the governor uh, wrote a letter recently to the Public Utility Commission indicating that he believed that was a problem and that should be something to be looked at. And so having a, um, you know, kind of having, as I described it, the um, uh, outlook calendar in the sky so that everybody uh, has one schedule, you know, that's something we haven't done, but we certainly could do. Yeah, you know, after that uh, happened, I'm sure you're aware of, instantaneously, everybody went to blame wind and solar for, the, uh, for everything going wrong in Texas. And uh, as they calmed down, they realized it really wasn't wind and solar at all. There was a, they're just a minor contributor to what happened in February. Isn't that true? Uh, that, that's absolutely true. I mean, we are a, um, you know, one of the interesting things about uh, the Texas market that I think happened that we didn't expect is we've had a huge growth in uh, wind and solar resources. And 
as a state, we're really um, quite blessed with, you know, a lot of wind and a lot of sun, right? So uh, yeah. in West Texas, it tends to be uh, very windy and parts of the state is very sunny. So we are actually a good place to build those sort of resources. But of course, those resources are what we call intermittent resources. They only, the wind farms only work when the uh, wind blows and the uh, solar farms only work when the sun shines. So, but we know that that's how they work. They're, they're intended to be intermittent resources. Um, and so they sort of performed as we expected them to perform during February. Um, there weren't a lot of mechanical issues. And in fact, solar overperformed what it was um, intended to perform during the days of the, of the, um, of the outage. So it was actually a net contributor to uh, keeping the lights on during that period of time. I think the renewables have an important role to play in the, in the, in the state. And um, in terms of um, you know, how they performed during the, the blackout, they performed just as, um, you know, as we would have expected them to perform. That's not to say there weren't some wind farms freezing up and that there doesn't need to be more winterization or weatherization, people say, of some of these um, renewable resources. I think that is something that needs to be looked at as well. But in terms of what the immediate proximate cause of the uh, February blackout, uh, it was clearly the thermal assets, the uh, primarily the gas assets that were the ones that failed. With regards to the winterization of some of the, uh, the wind assets, if we went to uh, mandate they had to winterize those wind assets, it'd be very costly for us to all go back and put that in. But couldn't we legislate that new wind developments going forward could use some of the technologies used in some of the colder states to help prevent that on future developments that we're putting in? Is there any talk about that being done? I think that will probably happen uh, as an inevitable um, result of some of this. So there probably will be standards for all different kinds of uh, technologies, whether they're thermal technologies or wind technologies, nuclear technologies, solar technologies. All of them will need to be looked at in terms of, you know, their performance characteristics and how we make sure that they can operate in these, you know, in these extreme conditions. Because, you know, we're these once in a century events, we're having them more likely, more frequently. Call it what you want. Some people might call that climate change. You know, I think we need to start building our system for more resilience and, and addressing, you know, the fact that we are going to have more variability in uh, our weather. And as a result, you know, we're going to have to sort of think about all of these resources somewhat differently. And so I do think uh, having those kind of standards in the new resources is whether they're wind resources or thermal generation resources is important. For a state that is one of the leaders in the world in, in renewable production, what, what what kind of message are you sending to renewable companies? And you know, as we as like you said, as, as Texas as, you know embraces this renewable energy transition uh, or or you know energy transition, what are you saying to folks when as you as we've heard from you and several others, renewables pretty much did what they were supposed to do, but yet in the wake of all this, now we're going to slam them with the uh, with the ancillary services charges. Yeah, I, I think that we've always had a framework in Texas where we competitively neutral, that we um, we try to treat all the uh, types of, uh, we don't pick f favorites, we treat all our children the same. Yeah. And um, I certainly did that when I was a, a policymaker and a regulator, I didn't uh, pick one technology over the other. And so I think this idea of having a level playing field, if we start assessing charges, you know, we are, we are sort of... Um, skewing the way the market works. And I think that is problematic. Um, now, you will hear people say that, you know, there are federal subsidies that already do that. You know, I think that is, a, you know, an argument that needs to be addressed. But 
as well. But you know, uh, these all these resources need to be to uh, operate at parity. I think so. But putting a set of uh, states, you know, just to talk about the state one, putting a set of um, state policies in effect that favor one type of resource over another, I think is bad public policy. Are you confident that the legislature will pass or will come to a resolution when it comes to getting things right when it comes to ERCOT? So as you alluded to, whether you want to call it climate action, climate change, I mean, these 100-year events are happening not so every 100 years. Do you think enough will get done so that we don't see more of this in the future when it comes to the grid and and having issues with severe weather? I'm an optimist. (laughs) I always hope that... Uh, that we're going to do the right thing. And um, I think there is more work to be done. And we need to start looking forward, build our, our grid, not for the um, for the last century, but for the, you know, for the next 30 years or 50 years. And so we ought to be thinking in those terms. And if we were thinking in those terms, we might make some different policy decisions uh, than the ones we uh, the legislature is currently making. So I, I think there is more work to be done. I think the legislature did a good job in addressing some of the issues but not all of the issues that were a result of February event. Now, to be fair to them, you know, this happened in the middle of a legislative session. This wasn't something they were planning to work on during the session. So given the circumstances, I, I think they did a credible job. I do think there is more work to be done. And, and hopefully over the next two years, as we have um, an interim session, we come back in as uh, a session in the next two years, some additional work will be uh, done to sort of sort through some of the, the issues that didn't get addressed. Part of what you guys are doing over there at the Center for Houston's Future is uh, low carbon and what it means and, and just where Houston can become a hub for a, a low carbon future and, and kind of a uh, centerpiece for it. Uh, describe the work you guys are doing and just kind of the feedback you've received as uh, far as where Houston stands in, in leading the low carbon charge. Like I said, I came uh, to the Center for Houston's Future about three years ago because I really believe that um, uh, Houston could be a leader and uh, solving the, uh, the climate crisis that we're, we're now facing down. And that's because we have a unique set of assets and skills and companies and knowledge in Houston uh, and workforce. And so if we can start to think, you know, start to apply some of those resources, not only to the oil and gas industry, but to um, thinking about how we solve um, the climate crisis that we're in, then I think we can have a, um, an important role to play. And so the work we've been doing has been thinking about how does Houston become a leader in the low carbon energy, a low carbon, as how do we think about Houston as a low carbon energy leader? And uh, that's the work we've been doing at the Center for Houston's Future of the last three years. We're not saying that um, uh, oil and gas, uh, the oil and gas industry is going away. We're simply saying that energy is transitioning, uh, it's transitioning rapidly. And um, and if we want to be part relevant uh, to the world in the future, we as the city of Houston, the oil and gas and the energy industry, then we need to start thinking differently about about uh, uh, how do we how do we have a uh, make a positive contribution uh, to that energy future. And so what's your message then? Because, again, you're, you're in the unique position that you've been pretty much on dadgum near all sides of it. And so now here you are, uh, you know, because we've, we've seen pushback from not necessarily from the renewable side, but we've definitely seen some pushback from the fossil fuel side. Maybe a little acrimony, if you will, uh, between the two groups as far as, you know, who's doing what. How do you kind of mend those uh, those fences a little bit? You know, I think all these forms of, of generation have a role and I think and, and customers have a role to play. So there's a. This is a, you know, this is a big um, a trillion dollar industry when we talk about not only um, uh, Texas, but the, the globe. And, 
if we can put our uh, brain power to use in solving some of these very uh, difficult uh, issues of making sure that we can have both affordable and clean power, then I think we can really provide a service to the world. And so we, that's what we're, that's what our role is at the Center for Houston's Future, is to try to envision what that energy future might look like, and then how can uh, Houston as a region, and um, and companies that work in Houston and uh, stakeholders all come together to help uh, achieve that new goal. Two part, we'll get you out of here. One, we've heard about, and we know just from all the folks we've talked to here in the city of Houston, yourself included, that Houston has the resources, the infrastructure, the workforce, what have you, to make this happen. What is the biggest hurdle in your mind, and that you've either whether you foresee it or whether you've experienced it or a little bit of both, uh, to help make, for Houston becoming that hub for the transition? You know, I think the biggest hurdle that we face is a, uh, a lack of uh, consistent uh, common vision. And uh, if, uh, and then we've been, so this is something we've been working on at the center is, is uh, and we communicated this in a number of different ways through webcasts that we do, through uh, discussions like this, uh, podcasts that we do, through a large conference that we had last week with the Greater Houston Partnership. And so uh, a lot of this is trying to uh, create a common a vision for where uh, where the future lies and how what are the opportunities and I think if we can um, help create that common vision, then the rest of this will take care of itself because we have um, a lot of um, physical assets, we have a lot of financial assets, we have a lot of intellectual assets, and uh, if we start to put those to work aligned around a common vision, then I think we can it, it, we can do some powerful things. So our job, I think, is not to solve any particular problem, but to try to create some alignment and a vision for where, where we ought to be going. And for the folks at home that are just now learning about the uh, Center for Houston's future, maybe they're in a different city and, and want to kind of you know, learn more about what you guys are doing and maybe emulate what you guys are doing, where can they find out more information uh, about your group? Well, you can certainly go to our website, which is uh, futurehouston.org, and go to our energy page. And there we've published a lot of our research. We do quite extensive uh, research. And um, as I mentioned, we had a, a conference a week or so ago, talked about the future of global energy. And um, if you're interested in seeing any of the videos from the conference, they're all out on our website. If somebody wants to get involved with your center for Houston Future, is there certain things that you're looking for that you could use some help on or... Yeah, you know, we're always looking for help with our projects. We're always looking, obviously, uh, for volunteers, for donations. Obviously, we're a nonprofit, so but we're always happy to get people involved in the work that we're doing. So that can take a number of forms: volunteer, you know, uh, ways financially, providing um, just uh, some insight into what others are doing, or you know, creating help us create create a bigger network. So any of that is um, you know ways that people can get involved. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Brett Perlman. You can catch all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, eRenew.net, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you check us out on Apple iTunes, we ask that you leave us a five-star rating. Why? Because we promise that you'll learn more about renewable energy from the podcast than you knew about it before you stop by. Thanks once again to Mike Neemer and the entire eRenewable staff. This has been the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier.